Hello friends, Steve coming at you from the Discovery Christian Church headquarters in downtown Davis, California. Happy New Year and happy new decade as we begin 2020 together. We got our uh, New Year started off a couple days ago on January 5th, a wonderful gathering that involved some teaching, some storytelling, some singing, and then of course gathering around the table together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We did not record that gathering, so what I'm doing here is just giving you a, a sort of brief synopsis of uh, the teaching. Just some thoughts for us to keep in mind as we head into, uh, again, both a new year and a new decade Together, it's been really interesting to to follow both in personal conversations, but then also uh, on social media and in you know news feeds, all that sort of stuff. Some of the different reflections that people have offered on the past decade, and while these moments are arbitrary in the sense of you know how the calendar is developed, it is still sort of an important moment, right? Of of pausing and remembering both. All the things that happened in the decade before, the year before, and then and then, what do we hope to see happen as we move into the future together and into a new year together? And so a lot of us take this moment and we come up with these things called resolutions, right? New Year's resolutions. A resolution, according to the dictionary, is a firm decision to do something or to not do something, right? What a great... Uh, sort of duh definition, but I love that, right? Do something or not do something. There's a positive aspect to this, a negative aspect to this. There's a saying yes to something and there's a saying no to something as well. And so as we begin our new year together, individually and as a community, I want us to think about this idea of resolutions, a firm decision to do something, to say yes to something, and then a firm decision to say no to something. So what we're going to do here is we're going to explore a, a story in Mark chapter 9, Mark 9 verses 14 through 29, and I'm going to read it and then again give you a recap of some of the things that we talked about as we explored this together in our gathering a few days ago. Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 14, the text, the story goes like this. When they came to the other disciples, and they here refers to Jesus and Peter, James, and John, and we'll talk about what they were doing here in just a moment. They came to the other disciples, and they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd spoke up and answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked her disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, 
take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out only by prayer. So this scene here in Mark chapter 9, there's a couple of important things that come before this. There's this hinge moment in Mark's telling of the Jesus story that comes at the end of chapter 8. And here in this scene, Jesus lays out for his disciples the high cost of being his disciple. This comes after Jesus asks them, who, who do you say that I am? Who, who are people saying that I am? And Peter has this great confession of faith. We believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus begins to tell them, all right, here's what that means. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die on a cross, but three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. And oh, by the way, what it means to be a follower of me is you also will pick up a cross. And as you follow me, you will lose your life, but in doing so, you will find it. So this very intense moment where Jesus explains to them how it's all going to go down. It's quite surprising and difficult for the disciples to wrap their minds around. And then immediately after that, he takes Peter, James, and John, sort of the inner circle of the disciples, and they go up onto this mountain. And on top of this mountain, they have uh, an incredible experience. Jesus's appearance is transfigured. That's the, the fancy theological word. He, he looks different. And he's joined on the mountaintop by Moses and Elijah, these two Old Testament icons. And the scene is full of all of these rich references to the Old Testament story. There's this foreshadowing again uh, of where Jesus's story is pointing towards, towards the cross, towards the resurrection. And then at the end of all of that, God the Father speaks over Jesus. Only the second time that God speaks directly in any of the gospels, he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The, the disciples, Peter especially, overwhelmed by this moment. They're scared. They're freaked out. They want to build tents and stay there. They do not get to stay on the mountain, though. And so once this incredible moment ends, they begin to head back down, and they go from this moment of uh, spiritual high, literally a mountaintop experience. Jesus uh, affirmed, encouraged, reminded of his purpose, given a clear vision for the road ahead, and then it's right down into the messy chaoticness of life, which is how life works, right? We may have just had this very sort of experience, you know, during the holidays, we were away, we were, we're in a different rhythm, we're maybe on vacation, having a trip or with family, whatever it might be, there might have been this really great moment. And then all of a sudden, you're back to school and work and the daily grind of regular life. Sometimes you have this experience in the morning, right? You, you wake up early and you're reading, maybe you're reading your Bible, you're, you're spending time by yourself, you got your cup of coffee there, and the next thing you know, you open your phone and it's just full of these red, you know, numbers screaming at you. 
maybe you have a good meeting w with a client and then you, you step out into the hallway and your boss is screaming at people. Maybe you've made a New Year's resolution to work out more or to lose weight and then this donut shop opens right across the street. This is how human life often works. The juxtaposition of these great moments, these exhilarating moments, these affirming moments, the mountaintop, spiritual high, almost immediately followed by the mess of life. Jesus steps off the mountain and into the mess. Now, the presenting issue here is this argument between the other disciples and the teachers of the law. So Jesus steps into this, asks them what's going on. Neither party answers the question, which I think is interesting. And instead, this man speaks up, right? Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit. He's been robbed of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked her disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. Now, the argument is never really explained, uh, but I, I find this scene to be kind of funny, or at least the way that I imagine it. There's a lot of humor in it. Now, both the disciples and the teachers of the law had some experience and skill in driving out spirits. In fact, in Mark's telling of the Jesus story, just a couple chapters before this, Mark chapter 6, Jesus gives the disciples authority to drive out demons, Mark 6, 7. They then go out and they do it. They're, they're successful, Mark 6, 13. So they, they know what they're, or they think they know what they're supposed to do. The teachers of the law also have some skill in this area. And, and I just, again, imagine this scene where the, the two parties are sort of arguing with them about like, oh, you got to say it this way, or no, no, you, you twist your hand to the right. No, you twist your hand to the left, or like whatever it is, just these really silly arguments. They both think they know exactly what needs to happen here and how it's supposed to go down, but they really don't know what they're doing. And I imagine Jesus walking into the scene the way that I sometimes walk into these moments with my kids. My kids are five and seven. They're both at that age where they're developing a kind of certainty about life and the way the world works. And sometimes I'll walk into them and one of them will be trying to explain to the other one how something works. And they're completely wrong. They have no idea what they're talking about, but they're speaking with such great conviction about how this thing is supposed to work that I'll, I'll sometimes just kind of sit back and go, you know what? You just go with that. Like it, it's just so beautiful to see how committed they are to their particular point of view. I wonder if Jesus is looking at this the same way, like, oh my gosh, you guys, like you have no idea, no idea what you are talking about. This helps me understand Jesus's response to all of this. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long Shall I put up with you? To our ears, this sounds very harsh. And again, Jesus coming down off the mountain, it seems pretty quick to get to such a frustrated place. Jesus, though, fully human, right? He's been <clears throat> sitting at this very big picture level for the last chapter and a half, talking about where the story is headed, hanging out with Moses and Elijah, thinking about the cosmic redemption of all things, the most important thing to happen in the history of our universe, and now all of a sudden uh, just plunged into this very petty argument between two groups of people who have no idea what they're talking about. So I think in that light, Jesus' words to me are more of a lament than a denouncement. It's almost as if he's saying, guys, time is running out. 
the, the clock is ticking on this thing. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life for the salvation of the world. And you're arguing about the right word or technique to cast out this demon. They bring the boy to Jesus. The boy really is in a bad way. Verse 20, some of the words there. Immediate reaction to Jesus' presence, throwing the boy around, convulsions, foaming at the mouth. What's fascinating to me about this part of this scene is Jesus doesn't immediately act. Why doesn't he immediately act? <clears throat> Does he not know what to do? Is he unsure about how to proceed? He asks a question. How long has the boy been like this? And once again, the father speaks up. We, we discover that it gets worse. The, the demon has been throwing the boy into water, fire, doing whatever it can to kill him. This is a parent's worst nightmare. Evil forces bent on the destruction of a child. I think Jesus's hesitation here is not about him not understanding what to do. He wants to bring out, draw out the full scope of the issue. Just how bad this thing has been and how long it has been going on. The father then says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And again, Jesus's response here is interesting, right? If you can, and I definitely read that. When I, when I read through the story, I read that with this sense of almost sarcasm. Everything is possible, Jesus says, for the one who believes. Now, that's the way that I read it, but I, I think that there might be more going on here than that. So let's take a look at this for a moment. I don't think, actually, that Jesus is chastising the Father. The Father is desperate. He's looking for help. He just wants to help his Son. And these are the types of people that we see Jesus elevating all throughout the stories about his life. What I think is really going on here is Jesus is trying to send a message to his disciples. If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, let's talk about this for just a moment because I think this is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in all of, uh, of the Bible. <clears throat> Part of the reason is we, we treat belief like a, a, a substance, a commodity. It's almost like we imagine that we have this bucket or tank and, and it needs to constantly be filled. And, and so we're always in the search for like, where can we get more of the substance to put into this tank? Because if we get the tank up enough, if there's enough belief, if there's enough faith substance in the tank, then we will see things happen that we want to see happen. And this paradigm, following Jesus, becomes a sort of feat of strength. If I can just summon enough, just fill my bucket enough, everything will be good. Things will work out for me. But faith is not a substance. It is not a commodity that we go and acquire more of. What we see in, in the Gospels, what we see in the New Testament, is that faith is a description of a relationship. Faith is about who or what do we place our trust in? The disciples have had success casting out demons. They've developed competencies and techniques. And so the issue here for them is not that they don't have enough of this belief substance. The issue for them is that they were trusting their competency more than Jesus. Now, the other misinterpretation issue here is seeing Jesus' words as a wish fulfillment. Again, if we can just work ourselves up into this place of really believing enough, then all of our wishes 
will come true. But Jesus is not promising that at all. This is not about just believe hard enough and good things will happen. What Jesus is inviting everyone in this scene into is into a different reality. This thing called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is about right relationships, as we've said before, between us and God. And when we are in right relationship with God and other people, we begin to uh, we begin to see and experience that there is more to the world, there is more to this universe than what we can uh, see, taste, touch, measure. A different world is possible when we place our trust in Jesus and not in our own abilities. The Father in this story is all for it. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, help me understand what it looks like to live in that reality. Now what happens next is Jesus, who's sort of shown us his human side throughout this story, now demonstrates his uh, divine side very, very clearly. He's got this thing completely under control. He rebukes the spirit. He commands it to come out. He tells it to never return. And that is exactly what happens. Everyone freaks out because of this great display of power. And then they're afraid because they think the boy has actually died. But Jesus, not done yet. No, Jesus is an expert in death to life. Things that look dead to us are full of potential to him. Again, this is the new reality that Jesus invites us into, a place where dead things come back to life. Jesus goes to the boy, listen to his feet, the boy is good to go. Again, Jesus, fully divine, fully human, totally in control in this situation. Now, as wonderful as all of that is, where I really want us to sit with as we begin a new year together is with what happens next. The disciples come to him after the dust has settled. Everyone's kind of gone back to doing their thing. They come to him and they ask him this question. Why couldn't we do it? We know how to do this. We've done this before. We've had success. We've got skills and competencies. What happened here? And Jesus responds, this very short, simple, direct response. This kind can come out only by prayer. Now, there are a couple of implications to this that I, I want to just share as we come in for a close here. The first implication is this. Sometimes our success can be our worst enemy. Sometimes the things that we grow great competency and skills in can become our biggest impediments to living in this different reality called the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we begin to trust those things more than the relationship that we have with the creator of the universe, with the savior of the universe. Second implication is this. We do have gifts. God has given us all sorts of things. We have skills, we have competencies, we have uh, knowledge that we've acquired, and we need to use those things. We need to use those things as worship, to bring God glory, to help build his kingdom. But again, sometimes it's in our giftedness, sometimes it's in our success that we can have the biggest blocks to living in this reality called the kingdom of heaven because we're so it's so tempting to trust those things instead of to trust the savior of the world and so part of this story i think is an invitation to use our gifts yes but also to recognize that we have limits 
we can't do all things. We can't solve all problems. There's some things that can only come out by prayer. And so the sort of final implication here is, again, this invitation to live in a different reality. Anything is possible in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean that we'll get whatever we want. Doesn't mean that things will work out exactly the way that we want. But there is a whole other reality, a reality beyond our skill, beyond our rationality, beyond our ability to understand and explain. And there is a tremendous invitation to live in that reality. And we enter that reality through relationship with Jesus and then through this ongoing relationship and conversation that we have with him called prayer. We begin to see things differently. We begin to see the world differently. We begin to see God show up in the world very differently. Now, this all leads to sort of one final thought. And again, coming back to this idea of resolutions, committing to something, saying no to something, saying yes to something. I've been sitting with this story for the last couple of months in large part because I have come to a point of, of sort of being out beyond my skills and competencies and, and recognizing that there's some things that can happen in my life whether that's as a husband whether that's as a dad whether that's as a leader and a pastor there's some things that can only happen in my life if God shows up and does something because this particular situation whatever it might be is so far beyond my own skills to understand what to do how to how to respond what needs to happen next and there's a part of that that, quite frankly, is terrifying to me. I like feeling competent. I like feeling like I know what needs to be done and what should happen next and how I should respond in this particular situation. But I've also come to understand that these moments are a great gift. Because, again, it's an invitation to live in a whole other reality. To recognize there's so much more going on than what I can understand and what I can sort of program and and. Uh, engineer on my own. This is very important for us individually, very important for us as a church. We've been through a season as a church where we've talked a lot about our mission and vision and strategies and values and all these things. So important to name those and to be clear on those things. And yet it can be very easy for us as a community to just kind of sit there and default to, well, this is the program and this is the strategy and this is how we do things and not leave space for God to do what God is going to do. There are some things that lie ahead of us as we move into a new year, as we move into a new chapter of life as a church. There are some things that only will happen if God shows up. Some things can only come out by prayer. And so this is our resolution. On the affirmative side, we are saying yes to moving forward, facing the challenges that lie ahead in prayer. And we are saying no to moving forward in our own power. This is very countercultural for us here in Davis, where so much of life is built around accomplishment and research and creating the next new thing, whether that's technologically or uh, whatever. We always think we can solve it with our minds. But to live in the kingdom of heaven is to live in a different reality, <laughs> beyond our rationality, beyond our skills, beyond our competency. And so what for you is the thing. When you look at your life right now, is there something that feels out of control? A, a sin, an addiction, something you need to let go of, a place where you've been looking for healing. Is there something that feels out of control? Do you need to let that go? 
Is there something that that you've said as a goal or as a resolution that you look at and think, man, there's no way that can happen unless God shows up? Is there something that you sense God has been asking you to do, a, a conversation that you need to have, a way to serve, a practice to pick up? You don't think you have what it takes. The invitation, again, to live in a different reality, the kingdom of heaven. Some things can only be faced in prayer. So what is it that you face as we begin a new year together? And how will you face that in prayer? Grace and peace, everybody.